Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. My grandmother lived for 103 years. My parents are both 89 years old and still live independently. I probably need to be able to answer the question that Ryan Frederick asks in the introduction to his book, Right Place, Right Time, The Ultimate Guide to Choosing a Home for the Second Half of Life. And that question is, are you prepared to live to 100? Today, we're excited to interview Ryan, who is the author of Right Place, Right Time. His work has been featured in CBS News, Forbes, Kiplinger, and other national outlets, and his content has reached tens of thousands of people through keynote talks, workshops, courses, videos, blogs, online assessment, and of course, his book. Ryan is the founder of HERE, which advises companies on how to create great places for people to thrive, and also provides consumer content to help people make wise choices about where and how to live. Clients include leading real estate developers, operators, institutional investments, wealth advisory firms, and health systems. His book addresses the role of place as we age, where we should live. The book is a guide to help us evaluate our living situation so that we can make a good decision and sound decisions for our future well-being. I would love to focus this entire episode on the content of Ryan's book because it is so rich and it's so relevant to me and my wife as we think about as we age and we have only one in high school and we've had lots of conversations about where we should live next. So I love the content of the book, but I want to focus this on the writing and the marketing of the book. Ryan, it is so great to have you here today. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Before we begin, Ryan, could you talk a little bit about the business and tell what kind of work you're involved in? For sure. Just to kick it off, I think anyone who writes a book has a story to tell that you're passionate enough to spend the time to write it and, and edit it. Let's not forget about that. To then get this, these, these words, these ideas out into the real world. And, and for me, my first book and my area of interest and real passion is helping people understand why where you live is and how you choose to engage in where you live is one of the most important decisions towards living a long, healthy, purposeful life. And, mm. and so that was the key. The kernel message is that being active is important and, and eating well, all these things we hear about. But for whatever reason, sometimes it's hidden in plain sight. And that is where we live. And not just our four walls, but what block are you in? What neighborhood? What 
urban, suburban, rural area, what metropolitan area, state, and so on. Our lives, our, our lived lives are a composite of, of, of all of those areas. And so that's, that has led from my book, Right Place, Right Time, to now creating more digital tools for people to make decisions about this and really a platform to help raise the visibility of this particular issue and, and, and also help people across all ages and globally, as it turns out, think about this issue. So that's place and healthy longevity. That's really the intersection of my work. And here.life is, is the website. I love the thesis of your book because I think it's fresh. I, I think all, a lot of the research talks about community, you know, that longevity study that, that Harvard had about Harvard, for yeah. men, I think. There's a lot of research out there, but the way you framed it in terms of place, I thought was a really fresh approach to the book. When did this whole idea of place mattering to you in terms of longevity, what was the genesis of that in your life? I'm naturally a curious person. And I kept on kind of pushing on this kind of why, like what's, what's driving things. And, and I, I don't think I had necessarily a, a unique point of view on place for a long time. I've lived different places, but I, I think this became an issue to me for two reasons. Dave, one was part of my working career has been on the real estate side of the world. So either investing in communities or in some cases, actually I lived in a senior living community at one point for a month. That, that really sensitized me in different ways. My, my wife chose to not join me. I was in my <laughs> late 20s. I was getting a lot of unsolicited cookies, meal invitations, only person under 75, only male on my floor. <laughs> so I uh, never, perhaps, never again why I feel so uh, self-confident. But I also got to see how people there were shaped by their their place and making friends and finding purpose in their lives and and so on. So I was like, wait a second, you could take the same person, but put them in two different environments and, and really have very different lives, ultimately. And so I this really, this that particular experience about 20 years ago, but really just become really curious about the way in which place changes us more than we change place. Wow. And as our society, I think, has become more attuned to the realities of living longer and the fact that it's much more about our lifestyle and environment than our DNA raises, like, wait a second, are we thinking about place as deeply as we ought to? And of course, the pandemic, we all got a front up close and extended view of our place. And now with hybrid working, that's climate change, political polarization. There's a lot of elements now that make it so that place influences what our, what our life is like on a day-to-day basis. I'm curious who your ideal reader is. Where do you hope to hook the reader at what age is it later in life is it mid age who is your ideal reader and how did you identify that reader so melissa what happened was i my background before writing the book was really in senior living 
And, and part of the idea was to impart some of the knowledge that I knew from understanding different products that are out there and experiences and, and to be able to turn that in a certain way so that consumers could make better decisions about this. So in that sense, it was a lot of people in senior living, it was 75 and older, but the book was more second half of life. So really people kind of 50s-ish and above. But what's happened, Melissa, is when the book came out, a lot of people were thinking about places that weren't necessarily just in, in their second half of life. Maybe it was their first job, but maybe it was hybrid working, maybe it was climate change. So there's some topics around this issue of place that have somewhat age agnostic. That said, I could tell early on that audience were really baby boomers. So people on the fringe of retirement, retired, not sure what they wanted their life to look like necessarily, and place was an important decision, that it's an important variable in their decision-making. One of the attractive things about your book was that you made it to be a guide. So you could dip into the first, you could read the first couple chapters, but then, you know, as I read your introduction, you talked about you could skip to different sections based on where you're at, which I, I thought was really helpful. Brian, if you could talk a little bit about structuring your book and how you came to make it a guide, was that your initial vision? Did that come after maybe some drafts where you go, no, this is the structure that I need? Because structure is the, is the bane of every, of every writer. There are some iterations. In fact, I spent some time writing the wrong book. And then realized because it didn't, it hung, it was more about healthy longevity and less about the unique role of place. And, and that's the, given my life experience and the research I've done, that, that's really, that's the angle, the, the, the novel approach to your point earlier, Dave. I was pretty resistant to it being a guide. Uh, there, Tua Gwande wrote a book called Being Mortal. He's brilliant. He's been writing The New Yorker for years. He's a physician and really was drawn to his writing and his book. And in a way, his guide is a long story about the life of his dad and the ways in which people should make different decisions or at least consider different, de- different decisions nearing an end of life and how our institutions should also think about it perhaps differently. And I love the fact that it was a guide without being a guide. However, I couldn't tell this story. I couldn't, I had no one arcing story that would unify all these different pieces. I also found that books that are traditional guides can be pretty dry. And, And for some... Maybe that's really the goal. You jump in, here's my form, here are my lists, and I go. I, I wanted something that was more engaging than that. And so I tried to create a blend of something that has some storytelling, has some opportunities for people to lean in and have find some similarity of their story in some of the stories that were shared, but have it be structured enough that you could walk away from time with a book, getting a sense that, wow, this is a thesis I hadn't thought strongly enough about. 
And it's nudging me towards taking an action that can better my life. And so that's, that was the struggle, Dave, I went through as a Love to have something as 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 uh, engaging as Wutua Guande wrote, but I this didn't lend itself to that. Nor do I have the the the, the writing chops at this point that Wutua Guande has. But I think I think I did succeed in having something that is more engaging than what you might typically find in more of a dry uh, guide, and that assessment was a, a later ad as I went mm. through it to make it a little bit easier for people to apply in their lives. And people really liked it. And so that's when I realized that it would be helpful to do a online version of that assessment, put it online, make it easy yep. for people to fill out, just takes a couple minutes. And, and then over time, actually, the book in the, in the book, it is, of course, second half of life focused, but the assessment on the website is is more just generally adult specific. So, you know, I've had people in their 20s and 30s fill it out. So I think that there's, and this goes back to my comment earlier around how a book can be a platform building exercise. I think one of the pros and cons going back to your point, Melissa, is that you target a consumer, but you don't really know who ends up buying the book. That's so true. And you don't know what pieces they read of the book, back to Dave's point. And so to the extent that there are ways, if this is something writers is, is interested in creating more a platform around it, then there are some tools and, and tricks to engage people in and around and beyond the book that can be helpful to make the book more successful and may also lead to future books down the road as well. Can you talk a little bit more about how you are extending your platform besides that assessment, that digital assessment? What, how else have you been expanding your platform through the book? And what are some of the success stories of somebody finding you? It's been fascinating. And I, a lot of my background is in strategy and strategic planning. But I found, which is, I think, helpful for some rigorous thinking. It's been helpful for just process orientation. Ironically, I, I studied engineering in, in college to avoid reading and writing. So this is this was not <laughs> the faster plan. But I think what has happened is that, and this is the evolution, I think, of people consuming information, is I think there's a tremendous amount of value, more so than I realized, of sitting down and, and writing a book. People perceive you differently as, a, as an author. It also forces you to be rigorous in your thinking so that when you're giving a short talk or writing a, a blog, for example, it doesn't force you necessarily to think through all the steps that a 40,000 word book does create. But what's happened for me, because my book really is about two things, helping people understand there's this really important life lesson that generally is overlooked. And then secondly, hoping to nudge people, imploring people, do something about it. I found that the book is very good in raising, it's been helpful to me in raising the visibility of the issue and moving some people to action. And I've gotten some of those notes, Melissa, 
where people say, I read your book, I've changed, changed my life, I now have a plan, or I've moved into this place, I've seen the difference. But I also know there's a number of people where these big decisions, it takes more than a book. The book's the beginning of a process. So what I've done, I've gotten more engaged in keynote speaking around the themes for consumers, for, for some companies and health systems raising this issue. And the book's been really helpful for the credibility. Also, has helped inform me about what's the right way to structure some of those talks. And then the other thing that's happened is I turned the book, or I turns not the right word, I extended the book into a consumer workshop. So the book's called Right Place, Right, Town, right Time, the consumer workshop. I've done it in person on several occasions now called the Right Place Workshop. And based on, and I've also done it virtually. And based on the feedback from those exercises, I've also created a course called the Right Place Course. Now, the workshop and, and course are new. They're in their earlier stages. I have now wealth advisory, wealth advisory groups have reached out because they're interested in providing some of this content to some of their clients. And so this idea of being able to co-brand some of the content. So I think that, Melissa, depending on your subject, depending what impact you want to have, depending on your level of investment of, of time and so on, there can be fairly substantive extensions to the book that can be, can be worth pursuing. For me, it's been more organic. I didn't necessarily say, okay, here's how it's gonna, here's how it's gonna play out. No, I, I didn't. I just try to left foot, right foot, what am I learning? How can I help people? And that's that's how it's evolved and will likely continue to evolve. Can you help our audience understand the difference between workshop and course? Because there's all this advice out there. Oh, you should create a workshop, you should create a course. And I think it's really fuzzy in the mind of our audience what the difference is between the two and what's the overlap between the two. I think it's evolving. And, and I think a lot of it depends on the subject matter that one is preparing. In my view, there's, there's some gradations. You've got your book, and then you may have an in-person talk where there aren't really questions, or if they are, they're towards the back, and you're not, you're not focused on customizing it to someone's life. Those talks can be in person. They can be virtual. They could be webinars. So there's that, which is more kind of sharing, less interaction, and and less customization for the individual. I think for the workshops, that's the first step towards okay, encouraging people to roll their sleeves up. Here are the key tenets, the the underlying principles, and then how do I apply them to to, to one's life? And you can do those workshops could be. Technically, they could be individual, but I found them, in my context, to be effective in, in, a, in a cohort environment. So you've got people that you can learn from, ask questions together, either in person you know, or again, virtually. And then the course, is the way it has played out for me, is another level of depth. So the workshop can help people understand a bit more about uh, how you might apply this in your life. And I've, what I found is in that group, people have got involved in workshops. They've acknowledged that 
place is something they should think about and want to better understand how they can improve their current place and, and or potentially have a plan to move somewhere else. The course you know, for people that are really serious about this and want to walk away with more tangible steps that either they want to make a change in the next 12 months or so, or they want to have a clear plan of how it might evolve over time. And in my context, that has been a virtual course, but you have a cohort you're with. Technically, you could do the same thing on a self-paced course, like laying out the content for people to go into more detail. I've created videos, online workbook, but I still think they're, 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 I would say there aren't necessarily super black and white definitions of what where a workshop ends and a course starts. But I think it is, it's it, one of the advantages that I think the pandemic helped accelerate is this people's comfort level in adoption of these different technologies that allow you to get some really good content. In some cases, do it with a cohort of others to better your life. For people who are creating courses, how do you get people to purchase them? How do you market these courses? Is it through partnerships like you mentioned before, or how are you doing it? I think something for audience to consider is, I think it starts with what, what does success look like? Because for some, and I don't want to make, this is a very significant step, getting an idea, a set of ideas packaged in a book and released to the real world, that is an enormous accomplishment. And, and for many, that may be the extent of the accomplishment for that chapter of life. For those that are drawn to more of this platform thinking, how can it be part of a broader whole? Good news, bad news is you got you to gotta put, put a marketing hat on. And in today's world, it's true with book sales as well. It's a crowded space and there's a lot of messages out there. And, and so finding out what the best way is for you to share your voice, for your voice to resonate in, in the world at large, unless I'm afraid there's no, at least I haven't happened upon any uh, silver bullet kind of black magic that's widely applicable. I know in my case, I've made, I've made a ton of mistakes, but I've also found some areas where things have really resonated. And, and I, so I think it is, I would say, informed trial and error. And, but also a piece of it is patience. There's a litmus test around your level of enthusiasm just to write the book. But there's another litmus test around the level of enthusiasm to turn that book into more of a platform. And I think for me, I've been really encouraged that I think the message is is objectively an important one. And I think in many respects, nothing for your readers to be aware of is, do you have the wind at your back or do you have more headwinds? I know in my case, with more people living longer, with concerns around social isolation and loneliness in our society at large, a number of different factors. I think place is something that's on people's minds. I anticipate will only continue to be so. 
over time. And so that makes the level of effort to figure out what's the right channel for your message. What is the right message? One last thing to answer that, I would say putting the assessment, the right place assessment online was, was a really helpful, it was an important exercise for me in the platform side. Thousands of people have taken it, people from all over the world. Only Africa and Antarctica are the only two continents where people haven't taken it. So it's that's been a great way of getting something that people can can engage and then share it with their friends. And and so there are some there are some specific tools there if if one's content lens lends it to that. One thing you said that I thought was really important is is the wind at your back. Meaning I, I took that to mean do you have a do you have a thesis or a topic or a book that fits something that is going along going on currently socially? And and typically that's not how we think as an author. We have an idea, we feel passionate about it, we need to get that idea out. I guess the question is is maybe it's a question to ask yourself, do you have an idea or maybe you can position your idea that is more relevant to what's going on kind of of the current environment? I guess that might be a question. So two responses to that, Dave. I'd say the first one is back to this kind of North Star, like what does success look like? And I know I have friends of mine that have written leadership books and their success was not a million copies. Their success was, I've captured this idea, I've captured my approach and process, and I know in my circles, for people I mentor, for maybe some of the talks I give, I have a book that I can hand to someone if they want to go deep. But the other response I would have is precisely what you raise, which is, kind of what moment are we in right now? To go back to your leadership example, what is it like to lead in an environment of hybrid work? What is it like to lead when a portion of your workforce has been their educational experience was stunted or impacted by the pandemic? What, is it, what does it look like to lead when you have an increasing number of women in your company that are trying to be leaders themselves and balancing all that's involved as a mother and so on. What does it mean to be a leader in an environment when levels of anxiety are so high and people feel isolated? So I think that they're, I think you're right. I think that you can take some of the subject matter things you may be interested in, but how do you put a context behind it that that seems more relevant is more relevant for readers and and also just timely i know that that's what literary agents look for is the timeliness of the book and if it's relevant to today's culture society tell us about your journey to getting a publisher did you have a literary agent or how did that work for you so part of what happened was uh, Henry Cloud, the author of Boundaries and a number of other books, he's a, a brother-in-law of mine, and he is hilarious. And anytime we got together over Christmas, let's say, he had an instinct that this topic 
was relevant to people because he'd get questions about it in some of his some of his content. So he effectively peer pressured me into writing this book. And he introduced me to the process a little bit, some agents. So I did work with an agent initially just to understand what the process was like and in the context of of nonfiction books, it's typical for people to have a business plan. Okay, who's the audience and how big is it? And why you and why now and all that stuff. And writing that down was helpful for me to get a sense. What would the lift be? Is there something worth there on the other side? And and then with a with an agent, it's helpful because they can validate is this worth spending time on or not? And and so for me, with an agent's help, I did reach out to some larger publishing houses. Challenge I found as a first-time author what, with, with really no meaningful social media was that it was unclear who was the built-in audience that would allow kind of immediate traction. And so that seemed a bridge too far in a timeline that I was looking to achieve. And, and so fortunately, with, with my network and Agents Network was able to then focus a bit more and find a university press, Johns Hopkins University Press, where they have a area they focus on on health and health, health, health and well-being, where this naturally fit into that. But I, I do think it go, again it goes back to what does success look like if 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 you're down a path where you want to have an agent and so on. That business plan is really important, and and I would encourage some of those pieces of the business plan regardless, because one of the questions comes up is this is a good use of your time. I know for me, it took about 400 hours to write the book and edit the book. So it may be less or, 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 or more depending on you know, one situation. I want to go back to maybe some places where you have found traction and media and different things. But before we go there, I'd like to talk, and you mentioned this, about the stories that you added to make to kind of give dry bones, to give them life. So I noticed in reading it, you you would have, I think you would have like two or three positive examples to one negative example. I don't know if that was the ratio, but I noticed that. So tell us where you got those stories and how you did that. So I wasn't rigorous in what the ratio was. So that might be new information for me. But what I did want to make sure was that the framing of this as an opportunity was important. So with my particular narrative, the key thing, again, for second half of life was that where you live matters. For some people, they might read that as, read that as oh my gosh, they're going to send me to senior living. And the book is so much broader than that. And, and so if the book title was something more about avoid the pain of getting older by choosing your place, right, that has like a real negative context yeah. right from the beginning. And so I wanted to have much more of a positive lens to show examples where people chose wisely, chose intentionally, and they were able to benefit from that decision, but have some counterbalance to say even not doing something is a choice. 
And that can be a problem or choosing something that's the wrong thing. That too is, can be the wrong choice. So for my particular, my style, and also I think for this particular content and message, I wanted it to, to lean, to lean positive. And so I did try to be intentional about that in terms of the stories themselves. Again, with my particular narrative about place and people living, that's tons of stories because it's not just anyone, any friend, somebody you read in the paper, but also within one's life, there's multiple chapters of people living. So I, I, I was not hurting for, for examples and did, did, was careful to take people's names out. So I thought you did a great job. Of, it was very positive. And I think it is hard in writing to give positive examples of people doing it right. And I think you did that really well. Talk a little bit more as you has, as the book has come out and talk a little bit about like the media side to things, the interviews that you feel were strong for you that you felt maybe anecdotally gave a little bit of pop to your book and maybe how you went around about doing that? So it's really hard. You know, I, I, I think that you have some people where, I'll, I'll use an example. There's a, an author, Peter Atea, A-T-T-I-A. He has a book mm-hmm. that came out in the spring called Outlive. It's in the same broad space of healthy longevity. He's a physician. He's had a long running podcast. He has people that he serves as a concierge doctor in pretty elite circles. He has created a following. I mean, he's really bright. Yeah. And, and his content, I think, is really helpful for a lot of people. But he had basically already created a groundswell of, of activity before the book came out. And, and so I think it really depends on where you are on this journey. If, if you're already a a known entity and, you've, yeah. and and people identify you with a certain message, that book is going to be received differently than someone who is not known to anyone. Maybe even that message is, 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 is too novel in some cases. In my particular instance, and I'd done a, uh, some keynote speaking, I've been writing a blog associated with, with here, here.life is the website for uh, for several years and and had an email list related to people that were interested in this topic. And so I wasn't starting from from zero. I did find though that it is, as I said, it's a it's just a crowded space. And when you're going through it, there's always something. Oh, there's a election coming around. Or even Take the more recent example of, of really the, the horrific and tragic and sad news out of the Middle East and, and Israel and, and Gaza. It's like all that noise takes space away from other messages. So I think if I were to provide some input for your listeners, it's really helpful to know, back to Melissa, to your one of your first questions, who's your audience? And how do you reach them? I think podcasts can be helpful. The problem with podcasts is a couple of things. One, oftentimes when you do the podcast and when they get released, there can be a delay on that. So what might be new at the time 
six months later is not as new. The other thing too, is that when you listen to a podcast, take some effort for people to then immediately follow up. So whereas if they see something in an article, then they may, they're already online, they can immediately act on it. I have found, I had hired a PR firm when I first launched the book because the, the resource was more limited as I found out within, within Johns Hopkins Press. Not unusual, right? Because yeah. everyone, this is hard for everyone yeah. right now. And there, there were some things that were helpful, some that were not as helpful as I thought they were. One thing that was really helpful that I was surprised by was, maybe not too surprised, but nonetheless, it wasn't core part of my initial thinking, is there was an article in Kiplinger's that yeah. talked about financial planning, referenced this. And I could see, because I had the assessment online, I could see that drove a lot of people to the website thinking about it. So as you're doing marketing, it's, it's really, to the extent possible, if there's any way to track people coming to your website and where they came from, that can be helpful. If everything points people to Amazon, for example, you're just not going to, you're going to have my books went up, but okay, well, it could be, could, who knows where it came from necessarily. Yeah. I think that's the challenge too, is linking cause and effect. What were some of the unhelpful things that your PR firm recommended? I think that PR firms, they are motivated in some cases by impressions, number of impressions. Some of those impressions are just more valuable than others. So you might do something that allegedly the website has a lot of impressions, but your topic isn't really aligned with the numbers look good, but the real translation impact doesn't look so good. So I think that there can be a pressure sometimes the PR firm just to get things out and not necessarily, it, well, it's hard. It's hard, but get it out into the right places is it's a, it is a black magic thing. And no one really knows on the front end how things are going to resonate. So, you know, there are some things I've decided to like not, didn't follow up on because I felt like they just weren't going to be impactful. And I think it's also helpful with PR firms to be, be somewhat directive. Okay. This is what I'm looking for. Let's, let's, let's go back. This is what I, this is what I think is going to be most effective. There's a learning process too. As I said, like you don't know what's going to resonate, but sometimes you can be played, just placed in things or have interviews or, or write up some submissions that they don't have the prospect of being a good ROI right from the beginning. And that's where it's helpful sometimes. No, I don't think I should do that. What's next? Back to your point, which is so good, is what is success for you? I love that question. It is such a helpful question as people write their books, but then build on that with whatever platform or whatever marketing they do to build to really to sell more books. And I think that my book, Right Place, Right Time, came out, was released two years ago. The content was locked in three years ago, more or less. So I can't emphasize this enough. A, what does success look like? But depending on that definition, probably going to have to be patient. And it's easy for expectations to get ahead of themselves. And so if you're more platform than just book release, 
then yeah, just just be patient, learn. I'd also say that it's just it's a crowded environment right now. There's a lot a lot of books are being written, a lot of podcasts are out there, a lot of video blogs. There's just a lot of noise and even when you're working with different people along the ways, very few people have all the right answers. Is- so I know there's a couple instances where I may have worked with a group probably longer than I should have, yeah. where it's like, you know, they didn't really know. Yeah. And it would have been good to pivot, try some other groups too. So, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's the, the, it's good news, bad news. I think the exciting part is it's a lot easier for, or certainly more possible, I think, for, a book and a message to get traction in a faster way because there's all these different modes and it's global and people can spread the word. That's the good news. The bad news, there's just a lot of noise. Yeah. And so to get above the noise is hard. And I would say in, in my journey, and I've been day by day, left foot, right foot, kind of working your way up to get above the noise. And there's, just, there's noise everywhere. So you're kind of breaking into different levels of noise. And the speaking has been helpful. I, I, I would say that too. It's, it's been sometimes when you have a chance to, to talk about the book or the concepts in groups, that can leave a real impression on people that, wow, I got it. This is a book I need to get. And, and then you also get just the word of mouth through that. Ryan, you have written a terrific book, Right Place, Right Time. The website is here.life. And there's a quick assessment that I just thought was really helpful. And it's a model for authors to build their platform, you know, just thinking through maybe an assessment. Sometimes it may be, sometimes it may not be, but you've really modeled that. And I think, Ryan, what you've done, you've done the most important thing (laughs) is that you've written a really good book. And I think sometimes, you know, when we think about marketing a book where the tendency is to is to not that we overlook writing a book, we know that that's important. But if it's not a really good book, if you get any marketing traction, it won't, it won't get that word of mouth. People buy books when they get referred books. And that's, that is just a big chunk of it. Yes, there'll be these editorial mentions here and there, but I can't tell you how many books I purchased just by somebody saying, Oh man, you've got to read this Andy Dillard book, or you've got to read this. Drucker book, or you've got to read whatever the book is, and it's just so inf- and you pick it up. So writing a a great book, which is what you've done, is so important. So thank you. Well, it's very very kind of you. I would say for your listeners, to your point, growing up, I was a born in the seventies, but really a kid in the eighties, and they had that Wendy's commercial, "Where's the beef?" And so it. I think I highly recommend your audience for those that are considering writing a book in that process. The, to the extent you can really make sure that your beef patty is substantive. That work is so helpful because everything stems from that. And so if you've got good ideas, but they don't really make them make their way into the book and it doesn't get the kernel of the idea. It's going to be hard for people to really recommend it the way that you have. Now, on the other hand, don't beat yourself up. Don't let perfect be the enemy of of good enough. And I know that I err on that side a bit, but as I said, the book gets dated quickly. Hopefully, the the kernel message doesn't. But 
don't don't beat yourself up and say, oh, I could have written more about that or more about this. Like if it's your first book and if it turns out you enjoy it, like you you went to the pot, you enjoy it, then you'll have other opportunities to to write content that's more timely, other book. A terrific way to end this episode. Thank you so much, Ryan. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to, great to be with you both. All right, Dave. Time for us to do our words of the episode. Here's my word of the episode. Chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro. And you spell it C-H-I-A-R-O-S-C-U-R-O. And I love this word because it's a mashup of two words, which is Cairo, which comes from the English word clear, which is free from darkness, and oscuro, which comes from obscure, which means not clear or lacking in light. And so you can imagine those two words smashed up together, what it means. It's the distribution of light and shade in a picture. And I love that because it's what I often try to do in my own photography, you know, get light with the darkness. I love that contrast. So here it is in a sentence. The photograph captured the beautiful chiaroscuro of the sunset with vibrant hues blending seamlessly into deepening shadows. So that's a mouthful. I hope I can use it in the future, but it's a great word. Melissa, my words are trash compared to yours. My gosh, that's an awesome word. I love it when words make sense. When you look at the etymology, you're like, oh, I can see how that became a word. And that's one of those words. So... All right, Dave, what's your word of the episode? So mine is really plain. And the reason I selected it was I thought, I know this word, but I wonder what its nuance is, its nuanced meaning. So the word is gloaming. So it's similar to twilight and dusk, but it there's a, a slight nuance. It refers to the darker part of twilight. So Ooh, that is nuanced. Yeah, the darker part of twilight. So, you know, you could say across the field, the fireflies twinkled in the gloaming. I think there's a an old religious hymn, or maybe it's something else that uses the word gloaming. But I think it's a good word that it's an older word that I think I might use sometimes. So gloaming. I did not know that word. And if somebody were to ask me out of the blue, what does gloaming mean? I would have given it a way off definitions because it it sounds like glimmering, which is really completely opposite in in denotation, right? I mean, it right. has to do with darkness rather than glimmering. But I love that and that it's so specific. I can think of like going on runs in the evening and we talk about crepuscular and that's that that twilight, but the darker part of twilight is a little bit scary. <laughs> it's it like is a little bit of scary. Time of night. So the gloaming, I like that word. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap, isn't it, Melissa? I think it is. And as we like to end all these episodes, I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Mm-hmm.